Thanks to NetSuite by Oracle for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. NetSuite is the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com fool. That's netsuite.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, November 12th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's show, we're going to talk Square Earnings. It appears that millennials lack the confidence to invest. We'll, of course, tap into Twitter. We'll have one to watch for you. But we're starting this week with a little bit of a new feature, something uh, kind of was thinking about here recently, and I thought it'd be fun to at least try. Uh, and, and my goal is here to, to bring these to our show as often as possible. So let's just call it a semi-regular uh, segment we're going to introduce. It's going to be a 10 to 15 minute interview talking with people who we feel like can make us smarter, have a little fun in the process there. And it's a segment I'm calling Between Two Fools. Aaron Bush is a fool of many talents, one of which is spearheading our crypto society service here at The Motley Fool. This week on Between Two Fools, Aaron and I talk about his interest in cryptocurrencies and the opportunities he thinks they present investors. Aaron, there's a lot of noise in the media regarding crypto, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, or Ethereum, all of this stuff. And it can, be, it can become overwhelming at times. Um, but, but let's go back to the very basics of why this all exists in the very first place. Why does crypto matter? Why now? I mean, this is all about the future of money. And, and this sounds a little crazy, um, but I have a theory. And my theory is that we're all becoming cyborgs. <laughs> so, so if you look at the way that we work, the way that we increasingly socialize with social media, how we find entertainment, how we learn, how we increasingly wear devices, where healthcare is moving, all of these different things, um, it turns out that our behavior as humans is increasingly digital, and our behavior is merging um, with the internet and all of these interesting components of that. And the same exact story is happening with money. The human economy is becoming a cyborg, and the future of money really is digital. And from a pure technology standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. But I think there are other important ripple effects to consider with that. Um, so, for one, I mean, what is a huge deal is that the government's monopoly on money and monetary policy is broken. That's a huge deal. So, 1776 represented the separation of church and state. 2008, uh, when Bitcoin was founded, that represents the separation of money and state. Um, and that, that's something, it's abstract. You know, it's something that most people, I don't think, at least that I've talked to, they haven't even thought to question that because it's such a basic foundational part of our lives. Um, but let me offer a little bit of perspective because I think it's uh, it's easy to get caught up in our bubble here. So, I mean, the first part of that is um, in the U.S., probably the you know the most common question I have is why do I need this Bitcoin thing? Why do I need this crypto <laughs> thing? I can go to Starbucks and order my coffee just fine. Well, that with was going to be my question. I mean, you're you're killing me here with I got the warm oh. cash basket here. <laughs> I mean, I'm loving these four holdings, but. I mean, I, I I understand what you're saying. What you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I could super glue your iPhone to your wrist. I mean, but that's essentially the same thing. You're right. We are becoming cyborgs to an extent. I mean, we're we're more and more reliant on these devices. These shifts happen very slowly until all of a sudden you notice it happened, right? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think what's interesting here is it's easy to get caught up in our own bubble as the U.S. in the U.S. just saying, hey, the dollar works just fine for all the things that I need. But I think it's important to understand that, that Bitcoin in particular, it, the most pressing use case there isn't Starbucks. It's Venezuela. Um, Bitcoin as a currency, as a store of value, it, it seems kind of laughable to us in the U.S. where we have a strong currency you know, a stable economy. But for people in emerging countries where oftentimes there are authoritarian governments that take advantage of monetary policy um, so that their currencies inflate into being worthless, this actually is like a brilliant way out for them. Um, And so I think that's really important to consider. This isn't about the U.S. This is about a global movement, really in freeing people up um, from, from bad government decisions. The other piece of this is that the same technology that enables Bitcoin also enables other use cases. It's easy to get caught up on Bitcoin, but really there's a lot more to that. And you're talking blockchain, is that right? Um, or is it even... So so I would say like blockchain is really just a type of database that keeps track of who owns what when. And in and of itself, it's interesting, um, but it's really one piece that makes something like Bitcoin work. So if you can have a full history of who owned what when, that's a key component in having a digital currency because you can keep track of you know just your scarce tokens. But I, I think um, Bitcoin it does not have that much programming flexibility. So there really aren't that many things that you can do with it. You can hold it and you can trade it. Um, and I guess Ethereum, which is probably like the other big cryptocurrency that a lot of people know about it added much more programming functionality. So a lot of the same um, technical components that make Bitcoin work add a little bit more, and you can have smart contracts. You have more functionality. You can have uh, projects raising money in Ethereum to do things like file storage, help with compute power, prediction markets, decentralized applications, and just a lot of other things. And if you can do that, with money as a foundation, you can also build things like decentralized trading, lending, um, financial storage, and you start to see the beginnings of a digital financial system. And if digital money is a big deal for people and other economies who are struggling, then adding all of those component layers is is a huge deal. And it breaks down a lot of barriers. I've always felt like having that track record of who owns what, when, or whatever. I mean, to me, it felt like the real estate market would have been, or maybe one of the greatest markets for digital currency, Bitcoin, whatever blockchain technology, to have a a lasting impact. Because, I mean, having gone through the process of buying a house, selling a house multiple times, I mean, there is so much money that is just incinerated in that process because of just redundant paperwork that doesn't really serve anyone's purpose other than to make sure someone else isn't going to get sued. Totally. So, there are private blockchains and public blockchains. Private blockchains are really just when like that core database functionality is embedded into your tech stack. So, real estate could be a really interesting example where it could save a lot of money just by using blockchain instead of the current standard today. Um, if you think about logistics, keeping track not of like who owned something when, but like where something is when, um, a lot of the same advantages you get there that can help cut costs. So I think maybe in supply chain logistics, some like back office financial functions, you'll see private blockchains come into effect. 
I'm pretty skeptical overall of private blockchains. I think it's something that still is pretty experimental today, and we'll have to see play out. I think public blockchains, where you start getting, it, it is much more disruptive to just like the foundation of money in general. I think that's a much bigger deal. And I'll, I'll just say one last thing about sort of like the abstractness of this. Um, I read a, a fascinating book. It was called The Sovereign Individual. This is a book that has slowly been making um, its way around in crypto circles. And the core thesis of that book is that the structure of society is determined by the logic of violence. Um, so I'll break that down a little bit. Humans are absolutely the best at finding ways to create value, to create wealth. And when we create wealth, we have to find ways to protect it. So if you look back across history, you know, we started as hunters and gatherers. We, you know, really just worked as tribes. But as soon as we moved to agriculture, we finally just through like the process of, you know, tilling and like cropping, we finally had resources to store and protect. And at the same time that you have something to store and protect, that's when you start need to organizing ways to protect that with militaries and such. So you start to see the onset of city-states, and then they start growing their military might. And so you suddenly you start to see humans are good at creating wealth. We move past agriculture into other elements. And then the same time as that, we move past city-states to nations, to superpowers. Small companies turn into multinational companies. We have tons of laws and organizations that, that all work together to protect this wealth. So really, the history of, you know, the economy of humans is that we've seen centralization of power to protect wealth. And why this movement is super interesting to me is because for the first time in human history, it moves us away from that trajectory of centralization. If we create wealth digitally, we can now protect it digitally. Um, and if we do that, just because digital money completely disregards national borders, it's not part of a country. Um, it no longer needs government support and militaries to protect it. So in other words, the logic of violence is changing um, because the ways to steal and protect wealth are changing. And if the sovereign individual thesis is true, then uh, when the logic of violence changes, so does the structure of society. And so I expect as cryptocurrencies and the related technologies that are built around it go mainstream, governments will have, I mean, they'll increasingly be less relevant economically, which is which sounds crazy. Um, and there's a lot to all this I've just said, but money doesn't live in a vacuum. And if money changes, a lot of other things have to change too. Of course, of course. Um, okay, now we're always obviously focused on the investing angle here. So, you know, we want to circle back to what this means for investors. We get questions from listeners all the time on this. So, I, I want to get your approach to investing in crypto. And real quick, I want to go back to one thing we were talking about earlier on, talking about store of value versus medium of exchange. Because I think that was one of the first questions that came to my mind when cryptocurrency came about, was how do you view this? Because it's hard for me to perceive it as a store of value with the volatility. I get the medium of exchange. Maybe it's going to take some time to get there. What do you think? I think it sort of is a chicken and egg problem. I think stability is um, a property that grows over time. Yep. Um, and so it has to start one place or another. And so what we're seeing with Bitcoin really as a store of value, um, I mean, people are starting to adopt it. Belief around the currency, just like it happened with gold, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, it's starting to take place. And there are tons of people 
around the world that are working um, to make the technology more scalable. Um, and so right now, there just can't be that many transactions that happen per minute, per hour. Um, but there are ways that that can be improved, and it will change. Um, and so the chicken and egg problem should start to to you know change. Okay. Um, final question for our listeners then. Your approach to investing in cryptocurrencies. You run our crypto society here at The Motley Fool. You get to talk about this stuff all the time, read about it all you want. But but give us some some hands-on ways to invest in cryptocurrencies um, that hopefully don't just disappear into nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, investing in crypto is super hard. I mean, just like, just so like straight I've come up. So I find. Um, and and like, I mean, these projects don't have cash flows. They can't be valued as companies. Like, really, what these are? It's they're mini economies. It's like mini monetary um, marketplaces. Um, but really, there are two traits that matter most when you're looking to invest in crypto assets. Um, the first one is: Are people using it? Is trade volume growing? Um, and then the second is, is there a solution to the velocity problem? What that really means is, are people holding? Um, for a lot of projects, people will just buy the token and then use it for whatever it is. But if they just buy and sell immediately, no one is holding. Um, and so if you look at how you know, like GDP is calculated or how any, like the size of any economy, um, how big that becomes, a lot of it determines on like how much are people holding your value because the more people are holding, um, the the larger your market needs to be to support all the trade that goes on on it. So those are the two main things: are people using it, and is there really a reason for people to hold on and have the velocity of money slow? So kind of econ 101. Um, and really, most projects are failing on both of those fronts. Um, scaling is really hard, um, and even for a lot of these projects that are worth you know something like 300 million now. They have maybe 200 daily active users, <laughs> and it's it's really sad. It's it's pretty pathetic actually um, that that their valuations are are so high. Um, but I think that's just something like a lot of the things that we've talked about. It's still really interesting, and so it will happen. It's just a matter of when. So I mean, one thing I like to say is that now is the best time to learn so that you can capture tomorrow's opportunities because all of this stuff is improving. And then I think Bitcoin in of itself is still probably like one of the most asymmetric investing ideas out there. There are lots of other interesting projects. You can come on to Crypto Society if you want to check it out, but I'll leave it at that. Well, I'm sure our listeners learned something today. I know I did too. Aaron, thanks for coming on this week. Thanks for having me. As always, joining me in the studio this week via Skype in South Carolina, certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, did you have a good weekend? I sure did. It was a little cold here, but it was my daughter's birthday party, so we had a good time. Oh, wow. Well, happy birthday. How old is your daughter? She is three. Three. We're out of the terrible twos, officially, (laughs) anyway. Well, that's one of two for you, right? Yeah, the next one is going to be two in about a year and a half, so wow. he's seven months old now. And oh man, oh man, you got your hands full. Yeah, my, I do. <laughs> my, mine are 12 and 13, so uh, trust me, it does get easier, but you still got a little ways to go, I think. I know, we're not quite out of the danger zone yet. <laughs> well, Matt, I know that you and I were excited to kick off uh, earnings coverage this week talking about one of our favorite businesses out there at Square. 
Um, you know, Square reported really to my eyes what was a very good quarter. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of good things to take away. Uh, the stock certainly has been selling off since the release. Now, I, I think the point I was making over the weekend was number one: the, the Friday sell-off really kind of took it back to where it started the week to begin with. And then we've seen some selling in the market today, which, of course, there's been some additional volatility with Square. It's never been a stock that looked cheap by any means, because really they are still getting started. So valuation has always been a key risk here. But for one, when you look through a quarter like this and you see a lot of good signs there. But to me, the one that stands out with a company like Square, I always look to gross payments volume to get an idea as to how healthy the business is, how many people are using it, what is that volume looking like? And and for me, I'm really encouraged here. I mean, that gross payments volume was up 29% from a year ago uh, to $22.5 billion. And I like to put that into context with other players in the space. If you look at PayPal, for example, for the same quarter, their gross payment volume was $143 billion. And that was up 25%. So, you know, Square looked like maybe they picked up a little bit of share there, a little bit of of a faster growth rate there for Square. But all in all, I was very encouraged by the quarter. What's your take? Well, you're right. Gross payments volume is the still by far their number one revenue stream. Um, one of the big reasons it sold off is it growth kind of slowed down a little bit, 29% as opposed to 30% year over year growth last quarter, which 1% dip. We're not that concerned about it. I'm definitely not. Um, the thing that really stood out to me was their subscription and services revenue. This is still a pretty small part of Square's business. Uh, it was about 19% of the revenue total. This includes things like their Caviar platform, uh, Square Capital, the business lending service, the cash card that's linked to people's Square Cash app. Um, subscription services revenue was up 155% year over year. That's an amazing growth rate, and it's still a pretty small portion of the total. So if they can even maintain you know, half of that growth rate for a few more years, this could become a serious force to be reckoned with. Another one is um, hardware revenue was up, which to be clear, hardware is not a big part of Square's revenue. It's about 2% of their overall revenue. But when they're selling more hardware, that means more sellers are adopting their product, which is a very good sign, especially their newer products that are geared toward larger sellers with higher payment volumes, like the the Square Register all-in-one payment terminal, as opposed to the little card readers that you would see in like a craft market. So that's a very encouraging sign as well. Um, remember, Square's yet to really monetize their Cash App, which is you know the most popular, in my opinion, of their of all of their products and services in terms of number of users. But having said that, this quarter looked really, really good. Just a couple of you know, like I said, a 1% slowdown in growth. I think their um, fourth quarter guidance was not quite what the the analysts had been looking for, which we really don't care that much about guidance if all the numbers, you know, look great from a long-term standpoint. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the hardware side of the business. I mean, that's for lack of a better um, descriptor there. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the gateway drug, right? I mean, you, you give your merchant a, a taste of how easy that transaction process can be, but it's really just about getting that hardware uh, in their hands so that they can experience how convenient and helpful the software side of the business can be. And I, I feel like that's where their secret really lies. And that's why we see them. Uh, we hear them talk so much about all of this different software they're developing for different particular markets, whether it's retail specific or restaurant specific. 
Um, I mean, they do not look at this as a one size fits all, and it's really trying to. I mean, it's 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 kind of a bespoke way of approaching things, I guess. But but it seems to be working now. I know that one of the biggest questions in the near term for this company uh, is going to be finding a new CFO. Of course, Sarah Fryer getting ready to step down. I believe this was her last conference call. Uh, she's obviously been a rock star for the company up to this point. Uh, you you have any feelings there as to whether this should be an internal hire that comes up, or do they need to look externally? Uh, do, do they have a time limit here that you're looking at? I mean, is this something you feel like needs to be taken care of ASAP, or, or can we be patient? Well, the sooner the better, especially in terms of the stock price. The market hates uncertainty in any form. Um, having said that, I have full faith that Jack Dorsey and his team will find the right person for the job. You'll know if the market thinks they're the right person by the stock's reaction after the announcement. But whether it's an internal hire or not, I have full faith that they'll find the person that they need to. And that in the long term scheme, the long, the grand scheme of things, this is going to be kind of a non-issue. Um, in the in the intermediate term, I mean, Sarah Fryer has been an absolute rock star CFO, so it's going to be some big shoes to fill. But just the kind of growth potential of this company is bigger than any one person. And as long as they get the right person in for the job, I think they'll do just fine long term. Yep. Yep. Sounds like Jack Dorsey is going to need the support of his team here. I'm sure he'll get it. Speaking of support, support for industry focus comes from NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Every company battles challenges as they grow, updating manual processes, replacing inefficient systems, getting a handle on cash flow. I mean, you know, cash flow, it's really what it's all about at the end of the day, right? Cash flow. Uh, as you scale, you need software that can handle that growth. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desk or your phone. Matt, you can handle HR from your phone if you want to. I mean, that right there, that's worth the price of admission, I, I, I think. I mean, hey, get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool. You know, Matt, in today's day and age, uh, there are a lot of questions when it comes to finance, when it comes to personal finance, and um, anything from finding a new credit card to finding an online stockbroker to figuring out if you could cut your mortgage payment, how to get a mortgage, um, how to get out of debt. I mean, there are a lot of questions that come up here, and there are uh, plenty of ways to find things these days out on the internet. I mean, all you got to do is Type something in the search bar and you can come up with something. But we here at The Motley Fool have a neat part of the business, something new uh, that maybe some of our listeners haven't heard so much about yet, but we'd certainly like to get this out there uh, for them to learn more about. It's called The Ascent. Tell us a little bit about The Ascent, Matt. Yeah, The Ascent is our recently launched personal finance brand that I'm fortunate enough to be doing a little bit of writing for. Um, Basically, The Ascent is more the personal finance side, not the investing side of the financial world. We Ascent uh, covers things like getting a new credit card, why you need a credit card, how your credit score works, things like that. In addition to that, they have a ton of content on uh, saving money. Um, over 50% of people don't understand what a CD is or that you can get one online or why it's better than a savings account. So these are the kind of questions you can answer. Um, personal loans are a relatively new form of, of financial tool. Um, mortgages, as you mentioned, you can 
compare mortgage rates online, learn the types of mortgages, what you need to know before you buy your first house, things like that. And on the investing side, this answers basic questions like, how do I choose a brokerage? Um, do I really need to pay commissions when some of them do them do trades for free? Um, things like that. What do you need to know before you buy your first stock? What is a mutual fund? Kind of the basic questions. Fool.com is more oriented toward people who have a basic knowledge of stocks and and investing in general. Whereas the Ascent is kind of takes it a step back and helps people through the basics that may not be as covered as well covered. Yeah, that's great stuff. And I mean, to give our listeners uh, the address there, you can, you can find more um, on the ascent by just going to www.fool.com slash the dash ascent. That's A S C E N T. Um, or you can just type in your search bar fool ascent and it's probably going to bring you right to it anyway. Um, but just, yeah, it, it, a really neat website with a lot of great information, a lot of helpful information. And, and I tell you, it sounds, Matt, like there are a lot of folks out there that can use that information uh, because based on a recent Wells Fargo survey that you and I were reading about, it sounds like a lot of millennials um, not only are a little bit skeptical, perhaps, of uh, the markets, but they they are definitely not confident enough to feel like they can get out and invest in the markets. And in according to this research here, 20% of millennials said they'll never be invested in the markets. Now, I mean, hey, listen, I, I've said things before that I wish I could go back and change, but you know, you can't, so you don't. Um, hopefully, maybe some of these millennials will look back this one day and say, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said never. But but it certainly is a, a strong emotion to say to say that. And you know, when you lack the confidence in something like that, Matt, to me, typically when you lack the confidence is because you lack the knowledge. You know, you lack the knowledge or the ability to do something uh, because you haven't been taught it. So I don't necessarily blame people for feeling this way if they weren't taught about this kind of stuff at a younger age. I mean, it's one thing for us to say it, but I mean, it's a big world out there with a lot of people who just aren't getting the financial literacy education we feel they need. What what runs through your mind when you read through surveys like this? And you can tie that back to the ascent as well. Well, it's absolutely an education issue. As a former high school teacher, I could spend a whole episode here talking about the lack of financial education going on in America right now and what needs to be done about it. But that's another conversation for another day. Um, the statistic in that survey that jumped out to me the most was that 53% of millennials that say that they will never be confident in investing in the market. Only 20% that they'll never invest. And there's always going to be some subset of a any age group that is afraid of the markets. A lot of millennials, for example, saw their parents lose their houses or you know, get really burned in the financial crisis and are scared of the markets, and that's not going to change no matter what. But the difference between that 53% that say they won't be confident to invest and the 20% that will never invest that's still a third of the millennial population that pretty much acknowledges that they're going to invest, but they aren't confident in doing so. So what what education like provided by the Ascent can do is kind of walk you through the basics of why you shouldn't be scared um, to invest, that market corrections and crashes are a normal part if you of the market if you handle them correctly. Um, kind of just educational tools like that. Um, Comparing different brokerages to find out which one's right for you, um, so you're comfortable. Um, I had a, a colleague actually, um, one of our editors, recently approached me and said, "I want to start investing, but I have no idea which brokerage to go with." So things like that can help you 
point you on the right track and kind of manage your expectations correctly and kind of break the misconception that investing is this big, scary casino and just kind of put things in perspective for you. It's a big educational lack of understanding in in the financial world. And that's what we're trying to fix. Casino. Yep, Austin. Somebody just hasn't quite gotten all the way back from Vegas yet. It doesn't sound like. <laughs> no, that's all really good stuff, Matt. I think I think you're absolutely right. I tell you, for a future between two fools segment, I'm going to be really excited to bring my daughters into the studio for ten or fifteen minutes. So really, that'd be between three fools. But um, I mean, we will be talking a little bit more about their uh, investing journey thus far and not only their perception, but really the perception among their peers and, and perhaps how schools are addressing this if, if they really are at all. So it'll be interesting to get a, a student's perspective from all that as well. Um, okay, so let's tap into Twitter for the week. Got a lot of kind words out there, some neat ideas too. But, uh, you know, we were talking about Square's earnings earlier. Uh, I had some questions regarding the the quarter and how I felt about the stock. I mean, I'm a big fan of the stock, as you guys know. I own shares. I recently added more uh, as our trading guidelines allowed. But Kirk uh, on Twitter, at Kirk Runner, uh, he said that he has been doing the same, adding, 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 little by little, keep adding to your best ideas Love that mentality, Kirk. It's it's one that uh, I'm telling you. If you keep at it, it definitely works out. Adding to your winners, one of the greatest lessons I ever got from David Gardner. Here, add to your winners, uh, Josh at Johnson. Josh, he said he picked up some Square today to add to his Mastercard and PayPal. Just need to add Visa, and my war on cash basket will be complete. Thanks for showing me the way, fool on. Josh, you got it, buddy. We're happy to help. That's why we're here. Um, and just to clarify, I know we had talked about doing some more on the cash cover, uh, more on uh, cash coverage here on the show. And I think what we've come to the conclusion, we'll do a quarterly update uh, every quarter after earnings season on the war on cash basket. So we don't uh, do overkill. There's always going to be time to talk about these companies, but we'll give you updates every quarter. Uh, and we will include that in next week's show as well. Andy. At a court wr8, Andy says thanks for the coverage on Fiserv. Andy, you got it, my friend. We're happy to help. It's a company I think that's been under the radar for a lot of folks, but it's a neat business with a, a pretty strong little competitive advantage out there. It's going to be one we'll continue to cover here on uh, cover here on the show for you. And uh, as always, you know, folks, we love it when you reach out to us via email and industryfocus at fool.com. And hey. You can always get us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. So keep doing it. We get a little lonely sometimes, you know? Sometimes I got to reach out to Matt and I slack him just to see what's going on because I'm not getting tweets from you guys. Just every once in a while, you know, give us a little love. Uh, hey, Matt, okay, as always, let's wrap up the show with one to watch. What is the stock that has your interest this coming week? Well, I've talked about it a few times and I don't think my war on cash basket will be complete until I get some green dot in my portfolio. Hey now. Uh, that, <laughs> that's one that I'm really watching this week. Uh, they just reported earnings, reported a monster quarter. Uh, earnings were up almost 70%, uh, 14% revenue growth. They raised their full year guidance. And kind of one thing to point out is this is a company with massive growth potential. A lot of their partnerships that we've talked about are not reflected in their revenue yet because they're brand new. So they're growing revenue great just on their existing product lines. Their banking as a service is really picking up. And 
their the number of active accounts, for example, is up 150,000 year over year just on their core business. Um, and this is a business that has tremendous growth potential, but is already very profitable. Um, their guidance calls for earnings per share of about $3.20, which means they're trading at 25 times earnings, which if you look at the valuations of some of the other war on cash stocks is rather cheap. So this business has tremendous potential, already very profitable, and I'm excited to see what they do over the next couple of years. Good stuff. And what's the ticker? GDOT. Okay, I'm going a little bit unconventional this week. I'm going with Eventbrite, ticker is EB. Now, what does Eventbrite have to do with payments? Austin is looking at me right now through the window thinking, shaking his head at me. And I listen, okay, Eventbrite is a brand new company, uh, new IPO just out on the public markets here recently. And Eventbrite itself is in event planning, uh, event management. Uh, for small-scale events to large-scale events and everywhere in between. But the neat thing about Eventbrite is this relationship they have with Square. Um, they uh, have a connection with Square and that Square invested $25 million in Eventbrite back in August of 2017. And so, we go back to Square's earnings real quick. And I just want to make the point that while Square did report gap profitability, it's worth knowing that the source of that gap profitability really was the mark to their Eventbrite investment. In other words, Eventbrite has panned out very well for them so far. So, the stake that they held in Eventbrite became a little bit more valuable. Uh, They made a note in the call that it had about a $38 million positive impact on the earnings uh, side for the quarter. Without it, uh, Square would have actually been uh, in a loss of of about $17 million. So, uh, that's that's neither here nor there. But my point is that Square is um, going to be running Eventbrite's payments platform here. They signed a contract that goes out through the next five years. A lot of attractive growth prospects with Eventbrite, uh, which means there's should be some interesting growth prospects for Square uh, as well, given their partnership. So, I'm looking forward to the earnings out later today. I'll learn a little bit more about Eventbrite and uh, what they feel like the future has for them. One last quick shout out to my alma mater, Wofford College. Uh, I graduated Wofford in 1995, and a little while back, I connected with Calhoun Kennedy there in the Office of Advancement. Uh, so, long story short, I'm actually heading down there to South Carolina this week, Matt, flying down there tomorrow. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, going to go speak with finance professor Philip Swicegood and his students there uh, at Wofford on Wednesday about all sorts of things, uh, finance-related, fool-related, life-related um, as you can imagine, it's been a little while since I graduated, so uh, maybe I could offer up a couple of uh, couple of helpful tips for those guys down there. But really excited to get there and get there and uh, check it out. And and I'm gonna be really excited to bring back some takeaways uh, for next week's show as well. So, uh, Wofford, look out! Here I come, Matt. Thanks for joining us this week. Always great talking with you. Always, always a pleasure. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan for Matt Frankel and Aaron Bush. I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.